Bibles this morning back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you're new to City Church, again, I just want to recap that we're in a study of the Sermon on the Mount that we have called Stranger Things, Life in the Right Side Up, and you might recognize that slightly modified title as well as the set behind me from the hit Netflix show, which imagines a grim, desolate, uh, alternate world that is controlled by an evil being, a world that in the show is called the Upside Down. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that what the show imagines isn't all that far off, really, from reality. There is an Upside Down world, but it isn't an alternate world. It's this very world that we live in, that we see around us, that is Upside Down. It has been twisted and wrung and distorted by sin, and it's upside down from the world that God originally created. One day, Jesus is going to return to the earth, and he's going to turn the world right side up. But Jesus teaches his disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount that it is possible to learn to live right side up now, even in this upside down world, to live a life that is characterized by wholeness and peace and meaning, to flourish. But it will look very different perhaps even strange, to the lives of people who have come to believe that this upside-down world is right-side-up. In short, in chapter 5, Jesus describes a right-side-up like this. It's one that is being so deeply transformed by God's grace that the people themselves are increasingly committed to promoting the well-being of everyone that they deal with, even their enemies. Shocking, isn't it? Strange, I'm sure, to some of you, to say the least. But then now in chapter 6, Jesus, we saw this last week, shifts gears. He begins to warn us about two seductions that Satan uses to short-circuit the kind of deep, heart-level transformation that leads to a life of wholeness and peace and deep concern for the well-being of others. The first we saw last week was the seduction of religious applause. When you practice religion for the applause of other people, you are masquerading as a person that cares about other people, but in reality, you're still really living only for yourself. Today, Jesus is going to point us to another powerful seduction that will short-circuit the transformation of the heart. And it is the seduction of wealth, the seduction of wealth. Let's read from verse 19 of chapter 6. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You may have noticed that Jesus repeats the word treasure three different times in verses 19 through 21. The word that Jesus uses is the Greek word thesaros, which literally refers to a place that you would store valuables. It's a treasure chest, a warehouse, anywhere you would hoard wealth. Now, the fact that Jesus uses this word is significant because Jesus isn't saying that wealth itself is evil. He's not saying that money is evil. He's not saying that wise financial planning is evil. What he's talking about here is treasuring money in a person's heart, hoarding it, living for it. Another word that we could use is worshiping it, turning it into an idol. 
Jesus' warning is here that treasuring wealth in your heart will short-circuit the kind of deep heart-level transformation that leads to a life of wholeness and peace and deep concern for the well-being of others. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about, let's talk first about why the pursuit of wealth is so seductive. Why, why is it so seductive? Because of all the things in the world that people treasure, Jesus says that the approval of others, that was last week, and, the, and, and wealth are the two that have the potential to destroy lives the most. So why is the pursuit of wealth so powerfully seductive? And I'll, I'll be brief on this point because let's establish the obvious first. Wealth has a universal reputation for conveying security and significance, right? Has a universal reputation. It's undeserved, but it still has a universal reputation for conveying security and significance. Jesus says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be others. Now, he's using a play on words here, you see. On the one hand, yes, he's referring to uh, treasure as the hoarding of money. But on the other hand, he's using the word treasure to describe the two things that the human heart treasures, that it longs for the most. Security and significance. And money has the universal but profoundly undeserved reputation for delivering those two things, security and significance, or more colloquially, safety and the feeling that I matter. Money, more than anything else, universally has a reputation for conveying those two things. Now, like with respect to security, this is why many of us hoard money. It's why, it's why we don't give more of it away. It's, it's our security. It makes us feel that we have a measure of control in an uncontrollable world. If the car breaks down, I can fix it. If I lose my job, I won't be left to dumpster dive on the streets for food. I'm safe. I'm secure. And with respect to significance, this is why we spend so much money on ourselves and don't give more of it away. Money conveys, we believe, significance. It signals to people where you stand in the pecking order of life. The more you have, the more you're allowed into the exclusive places that only the elite few in the world are allowed into. The right neighborhoods, the right schools, the right clubs. Being wealthy makes people think you're important, smart, and worthy. This is why wealth is so seductive. Who doesn't want to feel safe? Like Who doesn't want to feel like they matter? Who doesn't want to feel like their life has value? Who doesn't want to feel secure and significant? Wealth has a universally accepted, though as we are going to see in a few moments, profoundly undeserved reputation for conveying security and significance. This is why it's so seductive. Now, that's easy enough. I mean, I think most of you understand that. I think most of you get that intuitively. I want to look now at how, at how the pursuit of wealth short-circuits the transformation of the heart. How the pursuit of wealth short-circuits the transformation of the heart. Because for those of you who, is, who have been with us throughout this series, you will remember that the heart is what Christianity is primarily concerned about. Christianity, and I recognize this is news to some of you, is not primarily concerned with behavior. It is concerned with the heart because Christianity argues that the problem with the world is that the human heart has been wrung, warped, and distorted by sin 
out of which then necessarily flows behavior that is profoundly destructive to the world. And so behavior modification isn't the solution to the world's problems. Heart transformation is the solution. So how exactly does the pursuit of wealth short-circuit that transformation of the heart? Well, there are a few things that you need to understand about the inner workings of the human personality to really get how the pursuit of wealth short-circuits transformation of the heart. Here's the first thing that you need to understand, and that is that life organizes itself around the heart. Life organizes itself around the heart. This is also what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's referring, it's not referring to the physical organ, it's referring to the central decision-making dimension of your life. Uh, Let me put it this way. The heart is the place that your intellect, your emotions, and your convictions all come together to determine behavioral choices. Let me say it again. The heart is the place that your intellect, your emotions, and your convictions all come together to determine behavioral choices. This is why the Bible is so concerned about your heart. Listen to Proverbs 4.23. Above all else. Now, that's a big statement, above all else. Like, there's a lot of things that would fit into the category of all else. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Uh, We love to talk about free will. We like to think that we're all free moral agents. And to the extent that that by free will we mean that I have responsibility for my choices, well, I would agree with that. I mean, if I go rob a convenience store today, I can't very well blame, say, Mrs. Pennington, my fifth grade teacher, for it. I'm the one who did it, right? But to the extent that by free will we mean that I have absolute freedom over the things I choose to do in my life, well, free will is overrated. Because in reality, my will isn't really free at all. My will is enslaved to my intellect. In other words, the things that I have learned from my family and the culture around me. It's enslaved to my emotions, the feelings that I've been taught to have about things. And consequently, the convictions that I hold about these things. Those three inputs, intellect, emotions, and my convictions, determine the outputs that are my choices. My, my will is enslaved to those things. Let me give you an example. Imagine a girl grows up in a single-parent household with her mom. There's never enough money. Never. Mom works multiple jobs to pay the bills. Sometimes the bills don't get paid. The threat of being evicted looms heavily over the family. This girl hears mom worry out loud about money all of the time. Perhaps mom tells her repeatedly, to make sure she marries a man who has money and never signed a prenup. By the time that girl turns 18, let's say, just let's say 18 years old, how many times has she been taught directly or indirectly that money holds the key to peace and stability and happiness in life? How many times? How many times do you think she's been told that? How many thousands of times? How many times have her emotions stamped this into her mind? Like through all of the times that she's been scared to death of being homeless 
or relieved when a bill got paid? How many times has she envied friends on peop- or people on television who seemed to never live with the threat of eviction hanging over their heads and who wore better clothes, more stylish clothes, lived in better homes, better neighborhoods, who seemingly never had to live in the chaos of the ongoing threat of eviction? And you see, at this point, by the time she's 18 years old, the idea that money can convey security is so deeply ingrained in her that it is no longer just an idea. It has become a conviction in her heart. And so theoretically, we would say, theoretically, we'd say, well, she's free to choose not to live the rest of her life um, consumed with, absorbed with in the pursuit of money. But practically speaking, Practically speaking, her will is enslaved to the settled conviction of her heart that money brings security. And I'm going to tell you something, she will not be able to act against that conviction. And depending upon whatever other things she's been taught to value, she may choose a spouse on the basis of money over character. She may choose an occupation on the basis of money over meaning. Or she may jump at money offered to her for whatever she has to do to get it. This is what we mean when we say life organizes itself around the heart, you see. The heart representing the the intellect, the emotions, the convictions that come out of that. And then, of course, the human will that, that becomes enslaved to those things. This is what the heart is. And this is why the only hope for anyone... The 18-year-old girl in the example I just gave, for for instance, the only hope for anyone is not merely behavioral modification, but the kind of deep heart transformation that only Jesus can accomplish. Only the power of God is powerful enough to free the human will. Now, in light of that, it may seem obvious then what I'm going to say next, that what your heart treasures exerts enormous power over your life. What your heart treasures exerts enormous power over your life. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I know that's a little confusing, Jesus, but, but I think you get the sense of it. Jesus is comparing the power of the eye to the power of the heart's treasure. And so if you see things correctly with your eye, you can physically move around the world in relative safety, right? You're not going to walk out on, uh, into the street and get hit by an oncoming car. You won't walk off the edge of the cliff and so forth. If your eye doesn't see things correctly, if you're blinded, for instance, your whole body's in danger. that's, That's clear enough. In the same way, Jesus is saying, if your heart is healthy, if your intellect and emotions and convictions are all aligned with reality, your heart will assign the correct value to money. Won't give it more power than it deserves. Give it just enough power, just the right amount of power, but not more power than it deserves which will result then in a life that flourishes in all of the most important ways. But on the other hand, if your heart isn't aligned with reality, if your intellect and your emotions and your convictions all align with an upside-down world that you think is right-side-up, 
Well, your heart will perceive the value of money in a distorted and twisted way. Your heart will treasure money, which will systematically lead you into practices that bring the opposite of wholeness and peace and flourishing. Jesus gives us a couple examples, a few examples of this. For instance, Jesus says that absorption with wealth will blind you to the futility of treasuring money. Look again at what he says in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Everything that money purchases is one day going to end up in a junkyard or turned down or torn down. Every item of clothing that you purchase is going to get old. It's going to go out of style or otherwise get ruined. I have a picture. I didn't bring it. I wish I, wish I could find it. I would have put it up on the screen for you. But I have a picture of me when I was a senior in high school standing next to my homecoming date. It was taken in 1977. I had long hair and a leisure suit. And I was styling. I mean, I was, I was happening. I was on point for 1977. Today, when I look back at it, I think, you look like an idiot. <laughs> now, those of you who are younger haven't had the opportunity to see this happen to you yet, but I promise you that what you're wearing today that seems so hip and trendy that you spent your hard-earned money to buy, in 10 years, you're going to look at it, and you're going to see a picture of yourself, and you're going to think, I was an idiot. And it's not, it, if it's not clothes, it'll be other stuff you buy, all of which will end up in a junkyard somewhere one day. Have you ever heard, for instance, of eight-track tapes now littering junkyards all over the world? How about cassette tapes? Junkyards. Sony Walkman. Junkyards. One day, the iPhone that you spend so much money on will be a relic of the past. Future generations will make fun of iPhones, They'll, and those will litter junkyards too. And what does it say about a person who is so absorbed with wealth so that he or she can buy things that will continually end up in a junkyard? What does it say about a person like that? It says that they're on a hamster wheel, working, working, working to buy, buy, buy stuff that will perish, perish, perish. And so they will have to keep working so that they can buy, buy, buy more stuff that will perish, perish, perish. This is the very definition of futility and insanity. By the way, Jesus says that if you're absorbed with wealth, it will blind you to the futility of treasuring money. Here's another one. Jesus says that absorption with wealth will blind you to the insecurity of money. Verse 19, Jesus says that thieves will break in and steal. See, although money has this universal reputation for giving you security, that security is only as good as your bank's online security. Or it's only as good as the integrity and skill of your wealth manager or your financial advisor. People get money stolen from them all of the time by the people who manage their wealth. They get swindled into Ponzi schemes. They get talked into bad investments. Or the economy goes south. Money is not nearly as secure as the reputation, as its reputation would have you believe. Which is why it is no coincidence that verses 25 through 32 are all about worry and anxiety. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. By that he means security and significance. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Skip down to verse 27. Here we go again. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? 
like he said, he's seen the leisure suit trend. He's seen that happen throughout history many, many times, right? So he says, he says, skip down to verse 31. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? If you're absorbed with wealth, if that's what you treasure, your fate is sealed. Your future is anxiety and worry. And if you don't believe me on this, just look at the people uh, whose lives are spent working in the stock market. Do you realize that the stock market completely runs on anxiety? Like That's why every time the Fed raises interest rates, the stock market tanks. Every time the president announces a new tariff on Chinese imports, the stock market tanks. Just a couple of days ago, Financial, report is noted, financial reporters noted with almost breathless panic in their voices that the bond market, oh my, the bond market is showing an inverted yield curve. What nerds to say something like that anyway, right? <laughs> the bond market is showing an inverted yield curve, oh my, which has everyone in a tither because the last time that happened was just before the Great Recession of 2008. Everybody's in a tither. Everybody's in a tither about that. If you're absorbed with accumulating wealth, if you've fallen prey to the seduction of wealth, make an appointment now with a psychiatrist because you are going to need a lifelong prescription of Xanax. Jesus also says that absorption with wealth will blind you to your own greed. Verse 23 again, if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, if your heart wrongly values money, you won't know it. You won't wrongly, you won't know that you wrongly value money because your heart is sick in the first place. There's this passage in the gospel of Luke uh, chapter 12. Jesus says this, he says, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's very interesting that over the course of, I've been in ministry now for 30 years. Over the course of 30 years of ministry, I have had people come into my office to meet me for lunch, or or maybe they met me for lunch or coffee, and they have confessed like every kind of sin, lust, adultery, pride, laziness, dishonesty, stealing, gossip, out of control, rage, every kind of sin except one. I have never had one single person ever confess to me that they are greedy. Not one single person, ever, like ever. Because there's something different about greed. You see, like, there are no passages in the New Testament where Jesus says, watch out, you might be committing adultery. Why doesn't he say that? Well, because you know when you're committing adultery. You don't just say, oh my gosh, you're not my wife. Oh my gosh, you're not my husband. You, you, don't, you don't say that. Everybody knows when they're committing adultery. But Jesus has to say, watch out, you might be greedy because greed hides itself. It blinds you in a way that adultery does not. Like you don't even ask the question of yourself. You don't consider the possibility that you're greedy. You just don't think you are. Me? Greedy? No. You think of rich people or at least people richer than yourself. Or you think of your relatives. Because they're greedy, right? I mean, obviously, your relatives, they're extravagant. Or the Kardashians, they're, they're clearly greedy. Or someone else. But you never think of yourself as greedy. And listen to me. Listen to me on this. Please, listen, listen to me on this. 
If you find yourself getting defensive right now, like if you find yourself uncomfortable about what I'm saying about greed, listen to this, please. The sin that is most destructive in your life right now is the one that you are the most defensive about. The sin that is the most destructive in your life right now is the one that you are the most defensive about. So when you get home this afternoon, put that in your ivory hand-carved pipe and smoke it. (laughs) All of this, all of this stuff that Jesus is saying, all of these things that you're blinded to, that, 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 that the absorption with wealth blinds you to, all of this is to say that the way that wealth short circuits transformation of the heart in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that it blinds you to your need for heart transformation. It keeps you thinking that the problem in your life isn't as deep as heart transformation. The problem in your life is just that you need more money, more scratch, moolah, green, Benjamin, cheddar, Jesus, simoleus. And so you live life just skimming the surface, never realizing that what, what, what would really bring you the whole the wholeness and the peace and the meaning that you're looking for is to have your heart continually and deeply transformed by the grace of God. Which is why Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Why? Because the pursuit of wealth blinds you to your need for transformation. God points you to your need for transformation. And the two cannot coexist. Wealth, the pursuit of wealth is so seductive because it conveys security and significance, or at least that's what we think. And the way that it short circuits transformation of the heart is that it, it blinds you to, to the need for transformation of the heart. It just keeps you thinking that living life on the surface, just more money. That's, that's all I need. Well, I want to close with this. How do you overcome this powerful seduction of wealth? How do you overcome it? How do you get past it? How do you avoid that? Well, remember that Jesus said in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does it mean to treasure something. What does it mean to treasure something? It means that your intellect and your emotions and your convictions, all of those things that make up the human heart, means that your intellect and your emotions and your convictions have all come together in such a way that your heart is overcome by the beauty and the value of that which you treasure, right? You become convinced. This is what it means to treasure something. You become convinced that if I have this, everything's worth it. If I have this, it will be worth whatever it costs me to get it. Jesus says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, The defining character of the kingdom of God The defining character of right-side-up living is sacrificial love. And the defining symbol of the kingdom of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And if you think about it, Jesus had the ultimate treasure, the ultimate significance, the ultimate security. He was the son of the father, the prince of heaven. But when he came to earth, what happened to him? He was utterly stripped of all of that on the cross. He lost all of his treasure. Why? Because he died for something. And you know something? You only die for that which you treasure. What this means is that Jesus Christ must have looked at us and he must have said, if I have them, even going through the suffering and the abandonment of the cross will be worth it. You see, unless you know that Jesus was willing to lose all of his treasure so that you could be his treasure, unless you realize he looked at you and he felt, if I have, put your name in here. Put your, what's your name, sir? Jerry. If I have Jerry, if I have Barbara, anything I have to do to get them will be worth it. Unless you realize that, you will never overcome the seduction of wealth. But once you get that, you see, once you understand that, your heart will be consumed with something so beautiful. Your heart will treasure something so beautiful that mere money will never be able to seduce you away from it. You will become enchanted with the sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated for you. And you will long for that kind of beauty to be recreated in you so that you can share that beauty with someone else. So um, you're looking back to the cross to see what Christ did for you there. But I want you to see that there's a promise in this passage too that will completely overwhelm the seduction of wealth. Jesus says in the last part of verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says, and all these things will be given to you as well. What are these things that Jesus is referring to? These things. This is a promise that to the extent that you give yourself over to, the, to, to God's work of grace on your heart, and become consumed with the well-being of others, God will be for you all of the security and all of the significance you will ever need. It's a natural concern, right? I mean, all of our lives, we've lived for ourselves. I mean, that's, I have been the central th- thrust of my life. Guaranteeing our own security and fighting for our own significance, all at the expense of others if need be. That's been the major theme of our lives. And so the natural question, the natural concern is if I live for others, if I become consumed with their well-being, what will happen to me? And Jesus says throughout this passage, you won't have to worry about anything. God will be for you in Christ. All of the security and all of the significance that you could ever possibly need. Which isn't to say that tough times won't happen. It's not to say that people won't hate you. That you'll never be persecuted. Those things will happen. But it is to say that you will never have to worry. Because God will be your safety, and your significance, no matter what comes your way. And so, here's what I'm saying, is that to overcome the seduction of wealth, the powerful seduction of wealth, do two things. Look back to the cross 
and look forward to the promise that God will be for you, your security and your significance, no matter what comes your way. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, it is, um, I think it would be an understatement to say that these are hard words to trust in. Money has this powerful reputation for conveying safety, security, significance, and unlearning that and learning that God can be all of the security and the significance that we will ever need, that's tough. But we know that by the power of your spirit, you can transform hearts and that you you can help us unlearn things and that you can renew our minds so that we understand truth and reality. And so we pray that you would do that today. For those who are here this morning that have never come to the place that they've recognized that what Jesus did for them on the cross, that he lost all of his treasure for them. I pray that today would be a day in the privacy of their seats. They would come to embrace that truth and to treasure that beauty and to acknowledge that they're sinners and that they needed Jesus Christ to die for them and that they would place their trust in him. For the rest of us, Lord, those who have trusted in Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would continually look back to what Christ did on the cross and we would understand that if Christ did all of that for us then, that God will be for us in Christ also our security and significance in the future. We will never lack. And Lord, we need your spirit to drive this home because I certainly can't drive that home deeply enough that anyone, even I, can understand it. Only your spirit can do that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. 